Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Tales. Today's episode is called, The Murder of Maria Ridolf. This is a true story of a kidnapping and murder of a young girl, and to this day, it's still unsolved. December 3, 1957. It was the day that changed Kathy Chapman's life forever. Chapman was just eight years old that December and like nearly every child in Sycamore, Illinois, she couldn't wait for the first snowfall. Chuck Ridolph, then 11 years old, remembers his little sister, seven-year-old Maria, rushing out to play with Kathy around 6 p.m., just as flurries and the dark night settled over the idyllic Midwestern town. Today, I'm sure a lot of parents are saying, how could that young girl have been out after dark on that corner? Well, this was a norm, Chuck Ridolph explained. No one ever locked doors in Sycamore or thought twice about letting little girls out to play a game they called Duck the Cars. We would go around the pole until a car would come up the street and then you had to get behind a tree before the car lights hit you, Chapman said, smiling at the memory. Retired Sycamore Police Lieutenant Patrick Soler has studied the cold case extensively. The unknown subject would have approached from south on Center Cross Street. Probably had a vehicle parked on the road. He may have gone by and seen the girls playing, said Soler. Moriarty asked Kathy, had you ever seen him? I had never seen him before, she replied. Not at all. And were you nervous at all with someone walking up towards you? No, we didn't even think twice about it, Chapman explained. He stopped to talk to us, told us, his name was Johnny. Maria took the piggyback ride, and he went maybe twenty feet away with her, and then came back, and asked if we liked dolls, and then Maria went home to get a doll. She went home and brought her doll back. And I said I was going to go home and get my mittens. I was cold, Chapman continued. I left both of them standing there on the corner, and when I got back, they were gone. No sign of her doll, no sign of her, no sign of anybody. Kathy came to the door and asked if Maria was there. I didn't think anything of it. I just said, no, she's still outside, Chuck Ridolfer called. It was a few minutes later, she came back. I can't find Maria. When Chuck searched for Maria and couldn't find her, he finally told his parents. According to public records, it was another hour before Ridolph called police, who joined an already frantic search for Maria and the man who called himself Johnny. If you can imagine, armed citizens walking the streets with shotguns and rifles and handguns tucked in their waistband, knocking on your door. We need to search your home. There's a girl missing, they set up roadblocks on rural roads. They stopped every car. Searched every trunk. Some men came to the back door of our house and knocked and asked for dad. Jean, then ten years old, lived with her large family, just down the street from the Riddle family. Her baby sister, Jan, was just a year old. 
Their father ran the hardware store and was asked to open it up so they could get flashlights and lanterns. We didn't have a lock on our back door. Dad cut a two-by-four and jammed it into the door so that it wouldn't open. Moriarty asked, were you scared? Yeah, I was scared. The thought of having to lock a door against an intruder was new. No one knows exactly when Maria was taken, but two neighbors reported hearing a scream around 7 p.m. In an alley not far from where Maria disappeared, her doll was found. The doll was found between the fence and a garage, which is set back on Center Cross Street. Within days, the FBI took over. Dozens of G-men descended on Sycamore and turned a small motel into their local headquarters. But there was little to go on. The crime scene had been trampled before any physical evidence could be gathered. All those investigators had was one eyewitness who was eight years old. I did have to go to the police station and view lineups of different individuals. I had to go through mugshot books, Chapman explained. Moriarty asked, do you know how many pictures you looked at? Do you have any idea? Lots and lots and lots, said Chapman. Hundreds? Moriarty wondered. Yes, Chapman replied. Thousands even. Yes, thousands. They talked to probably 1,000 people in our community, but they had a short list of about a dozen individuals who were on their A-list, so to speak. There were a lot of suspects in that little town of Sycamore, Ridolph said. It's surprising how many people were on the list of sexual predators. Of course, being a sexual predator at that time could have been a young man caught peeping into a window. Three weeks later, when Christmas came around, Maria was still missing. I remember Maria's wrapped gifts still under the tree. And your mom hoping she was still somehow alive, said Moriarty. That's right. Hoping she would be home for Christmas. Moriarty had asked Chapman, how long did it take before you found out what had happened to Maria? Five months. She was found five months later, she replied. On April 26, 1958, the case went from a kidnapping to a murder when Maria's tiny body was found partially clothed 90 miles away, near Galena, Illinois. A farmer and his wife ended up finding the body partially concealed under a down tree. Because Maria had not been taken across state lines, the FBI handed the investigation over to the Illinois State Police. Two years later, the Illinois State Police ran out of new leads and the case went cold. Kathy Chapman never stopped looking for the face that only she had seen. I never stopped looking for him, never, she told Moriarty. Isn't it still hard for you, Kathy? Yeah, it is. It's been a long struggle, an emotional Chapman replied. But Kathy hasn't been alone. Jean Tessier has also been haunted by the night Maria disappeared, but for a very different reason. Days later, her brother, John Tessier, 
became a suspect in Maria's murder after investigators received an anonymous phone call. At some point, the FBI came to your home, Moriarty noted to Jean. They did, she said. They were scary men in suits, and they asked my mom whether John had come home that night. And she said yes. But according to Jean, that was a lie. Moriarty asked Jean, why do you think your mom lied about your brother being home when you knew he wasn't? I thought she must be protecting him because she had, to my knowledge, lied to protect him before. Secrets Revealed As years turned to decades and there was still no arrest in the kidnapping and murder of little Maria Ridolph, it seemed the mystery of her death would haunt the town of Sycamore forever. I think a lot of people look at Sycamore, Illinois, and they say, oh, the perfect American town, the great place to raise kids. There were a lot of dark secrets in that town too. Fifty years after Maria's mysterious murder, one of those dark Tessier family secrets would shock their tiny town. Jean said it stirred up many old wounds. It dragged me against my will, back into a past that I was glad to have survived. The year was 1994, and Jean's mom was on her deathbed about to make a stunning confession about her son. The sisters Jan and Mary were at their mother's bedside. I knew she was taking to her grave so many demons. She seemed like she was fighting dying, Jan said. All of a sudden, I hear, Janet, she grabbed my wrist in the strongest grip and then she said, those two little girls and that one that disappeared. John did it. John did it. And you must tell someone. Was what she said to you that clear? John did it. It was that clear? Moriarty asked. Jan replied, yeah. Very clear, she was frantically adamant that I do something. Jan says she was so focused on calming her dying mother that she never asked why Eileen Tessier suspected her own son of snatching and killing Maria Ridolph. I promised her I would take care of it. I said, Mom, don't worry, I'll take care of it, Jan explained. And finally, she just, kind of, put her head back on the pillow and said, Oh, you know, and closed her eyes. Eileen Tessier died weeks later. Jan says she didn't trust her father to be honest about this, so she made it her mission to find the truth. I was kind of the family screw-up for a lot of my life. And if I touched something it broke. And I think, in a way, it was me fulfilling an obligation finally, you know, living up to my promise, she told Moriarty. While Jan's siblings had their doubts, they all decided to support her in her quest for justice and risk revealing even more painful family secrets. We all realized that this is what we had to do, said Jean. We had to open up all the secrets, Jean said and this nightmare of a past. Who wanted to do that? And put it out for the world to see? Jan called the FBI and the Sycamore Police Department, but her brother appeared to have an alibi, 
placing him miles away from the crime. John Tessier even passed a polygraph. So, both agencies chose not to investigate, and Jan gave up. Then, ten years later, a friend got Jan thinking again, about the promise she made to her mother. He says, you never know. You may find a real bulldog of an investigator. And for some reason those words hung in my head. The one law enforcement agency that Jan hadn't contacted yet, the Illinois State Police, was about to get an email. I hit send. And then I went outside to have a cigarette. And I looked up at the sky and I said, Mom, listen, you and God better get something rolling here because I can't keep doing this, she said. And two days later, I get a phone call. I remember looking up and going, well, that was pretty good, Mom. Special Agent Brian Hanley wanted to hear more. Why? What was so significant about what Jan had to tell you about this case, Moriarty asked. She came to us and told us that her brother committed this murder, said Hanley. And that this is going to be something that drags the whole family into the spotlight? Correct, he said. I knew that it would be like ripping the scab off of this very deep wound, said Jean. Jean Tessier didn't hold back when Hanley interviewed her, starting with the lie she says her mother told the FBI about her brother. All I knew was that John didn't come home that night that Maria disappeared, and that mom lied to the FBI and said he had, she told Moriarty. Jean says she also wanted Hanley to know just how evil her brother could be. So, for the first time ever, she revealed what she says is a long-buried family secret. He asked me something about what I knew about John's sexual tendencies. And I told him that John had abused me, she continued. Throughout her childhood, Jean says her brother sexually abused her, and so did her father. She says her own mother knew, but kept it secret. She said, I love my mother, I love my father, and, I love John. But they all did great harm to me. By this time, Jean's father has also died. There was only one person who could say for sure if John Tessier was the Johnny who kidnapped and killed Maria Ridolf. Boy, my eyes lit up. A suspect, after all these years? I thought the case was closed, said Maria's playmate, Kathy Chapman. Chapman was by then a 61-year-old grandmother when Hanley showed her a photo lineup of six pictures of young men who lived in Sycamore in 1957. One of them was John Tessier. She picks this one and says, no, and points to this one. That was Johnny, said Chapman. Immediately, you knew it? Moriarty asked. Immediately, she replied. Moriarty asked Hanley, in the back of your mind, what are you thinking? I'm thinking we've got the right guy, he said. Agent Hanley tracked John Tessier to Seattle, Washington, but his name was now Jack McCullough.
He says he took his late mother's maiden name to honor her family and then married Janie O'Connor's mother. When my mother called me to tell me that Jack had been arrested, I laughed. It was unbelievable. I mean, those aren't words I ever expected to hear, O'Connor said. I've known Jack since I was eight years old. I grew up with him. I can't see that. But Hanley and two veteran Washington State cold case detectives saw something different in Janie's stepfather. Especially when they showed him the photo lineup that Kathy Chapman saw. I don't know any of these guys. I don't think any of these guys are from Sycamore, McCullough told detectives. Like it or not, Jack McCullough was about to come face to face with John Tessier and his alleged dark past. John Tessier, a.k.a. Jack McCullough. At a police station in Seattle, 2,000 miles away from Sycamore, Illinois, the main suspect in Maria Ridolfa's kidnapping and murder is taken in for questioning. The suspect, John Tessier, is a 72-year-old former police officer, living in Seattle under a new name, Jack McCullough. When investigators make it clear they suspected McCullough of being the Maria Ridolf killer, he goes on the defensive. I did not kidnap that little girl. She was loved in the neighborhood. She was a little girl with big brown eyes. And she was sweet as could be, hardly said a word to anybody. And everyone loved her, McCullough told detectives. To state's attorney Clay Campbell, McCullough's clear and detailed memory of the child was a red flag. It appeared to us that he was describing somebody that he was obsessed with, that he had thought a lot about, he told Moriarty. Even more troubling to investigators, McCullough makes an astounding claim, he knows the identity of the killer, someone from the old neighborhood. McCullough told detectives, I want to talk to you about who I think did it. Seattle cold case detectives, Cloyd Steiger and Mike Sisinski assisted in McCullough's interrogation. That's a classic, like a lot of serial murderers actually that I've interviewed, it's the same thing. They're going to help you find the real murderer, Sisinski told Moriarty. McCullough told detectives, this guy would have been perfect. He was about my height, he looked something like me. He doesn't say he looks like the description given. He said, he looks like me, Steiger pointed out. Moriarty asked, what does that say to you? That says to me that, it is me. And I'm just trying to push your attention over here, he replied. Jack McCullough, a.k.a. John Tessier, chose to sit down with 48 hours to tell his story. Aaron Moriarty asked, Are you the Johnny who kidnapped and killed Maria Ridolph? Jack McCullough stated, Absolutely not. McCullough does admit to sex play with his sister, Jean, when they were younger. Special Agent Brian Hanley said, You had a sexual encounter with your sister. Aaron Moriarty asked, Did you abuse your sister as she was growing up? You did, didn't you? Jack McCullough stated, My sister and I were very close. 
Aaron Moriarty asked, What do you mean that you were very close with your sister? Jack McCullough stated, We're done with this. This has nothing to do with Maria, has nothing to do with murder. Aaron Moriarty said, You were. Jack McCullough stated, We're done. Aaron Moriarty asked, So, you're not going to answer anything more on that? Jack McCullough stated, Correct. Special Agent Brian Hanley said, As you got older, there could there have been other times? Jack McCullough stated, Yeah, but this doesn't make me a suspect in a murder. Still, when Clay Campbell watched the interrogation, he was convinced they had Maria's killer. I thought to myself, time should not allow you to get away with murder. I thought I had an obligation to go after him. At a press conference, Campbell announced that McCullough was charged with murder, kidnapping, and abduction of an infant. If they had a tiny bit of evidence, maybe I'd think, could it be? But they have no evidence. They have no proof, said Janie O'Connor. McCullough's stepdaughter says Campbell has the wrong man. But why would his own siblings say that he killed that little girl? Moriarty asked O'Connor. I have no idea, she said. But to wait, 54 years, to sit on info. I can't imagine waiting a day, if you believed you knew who killed a little girl. O'Connor says her stepfather was a decorated Air Force captain and police officer. But she had never heard Michelle Weinman's story. When detectives in Seattle started looking into McCullough's background, they found Weinman, a bartender, in Tacoma. This man is not what he claims to be, he's a monster, Weinman told Moriarty. And I said, yeah, I know him. You know, he molested me. Weinman told detectives that back in 1982, when McCullough was Officer Tessier, she was a 14-year-old runaway, seeking refuge from an abusive home. Weinman says he took her in and then made a move. I was on the couch, and he just started to touch me and tried to kiss me. And he assaulted me, she said. Moriarty asked, when you say assault, did he rape you? You know. An emotional Weinman replied, then buried her head in her hands. Tessier was charged with statutory rape, but eventually pleaded guilty to communication with a minor for immoral purposes, a misdemeanor, and was fired from the force. Jack McCullough asked, it didn't happen? Aaron Moriarty asked, if nothing happened, why would you plead guilty? Jack McCullough stated, I didn't have money to fight it. Aaron Moriarty asked, So, you're saying you never touched Michelle Weinman? Jack McCullough stated, I'm saying I never raped her. I never attempted to rape her. I never had sex with her. But state's attorney Clay Campbell still had to prove that McCullough was a killer. In search of DNA evidence, the state had Maria Ridolfa's body exhumed. After a half-century, they found nothing. Moriarty asked Campbell, There's no physical evidence at all to tie Jack McCullough to this murder? 
That is correct, he replied. It's all circumstantial? That's correct, said Campbell. So, Campbell made a surprising move. He charged Jack McCullough with a different decades-old crime. During the investigation, Jean Tessier had revealed a specific incident that she says happened when she was 14, and her brother was home on a military leave. He drove to a home I didn't know in another part of town and raped me with great, cold anger. And then shared me with his friends, she told Moriarty. Normally, a 55-year-old rape case would be barred, but because Jack returned to the military and never came back to the jurisdiction, the statute didn't apply. So, Campbell made the controversial and risky decision to try Jack McCullough for the rape of his sister. Campbell explained, My thinking was, let's try that one first, and if he's convicted on that, it takes a lot of pressure off us in this next case. Prosecution has really nothing on murder. They've ripped this man from his family, destroyed his life, extradited him to another state, and they have not a shred of evidence. So now, we're going to do this rape charge. But Campbell had a problem. He had promised Jean Tessier, now the mother of two grown children and a chaplain, being considered for an Episcopal priesthood, that he would never pursue a rape trial without her consent. He said, well, I know I told you I wouldn't go forward without your blessing. But I am, Jean explained. And I felt as powerless as I'd felt that day. I felt like I was being raped again by this legal process. A sister speaks out. On April 10, 2012, Jean Tessier took the stand in a sycamore courtroom and accused her brother of raping her when she was just 14 years old. I made myself look at him as soon as I sat in the witness stand. I had to have done that already before I could even speak, Jean told Moriarty. I had never said that story out loud to anyone except Brian Hanley. And they were asking me to go in this very public forum and talk about the most painful day of my life. But state's attorney Clay Campbell felt he had a better chance of convicting Jack McCullough of rape than murder and was determined to put the 72-year-old former cop away for life. Asked what it was like telling her story on the witness stand. Jean told Moriarty, it was terrible. Because I had no control over the story. I had to only answer the questions that I was given. In a room full of strangers, except for the man who had done this to me. Of course, he says he's innocent, said Michelle Weinman, who was allowed to testify about what she says McCullough did to her when she was also a teen. I'm here to tell you right along with his sister, this man is not what he claims to be. He wears a mask, and it's scary, she told Moriarty. McCullough, concerned he couldn't get an impartial jury in Sycamore, chose to let a judge decide his fate. The trial lasted four days. Two men who lived in the house, where Jean says the assault took place, denied any knowledge of the event. With no evidence to back her story, Jean feared that her word wouldn't be enough for the judge and left, 
before the verdict was in. I was several hours towards home, she explained. I didn't want to be there to hear it. Moriarty asked, why were you so sure that he wouldn't be convicted? Because Jean replied, he'd gotten away with everything he'd done his whole life, including what he did to Michelle. Jean was right. Jack McCullough was found not guilty of rape and not guilty of indecent liberties with a child. Jean says she was publicly humiliated for nothing. The judge asked why had I waited so long to come forward? And why was I telling this story now? Jean says she wasn't allowed to tell the judge that she felt pressured to take the stand. It felt like another violation, she told Moriarty. Aaron Moriarty asked, Did you think when you were acquitted on rape, then that it would be much easier than you might not even go on trial for the murder? Jack McCullough replied, No, I was never worried about the murder trial, because I had FBI evidence that I couldn't have done it. Five months later, Campbell went ahead with the murder trial. The talk around Sycamore was that, with an election coming up, Campbell was grandstanding for votes. He says, if anything, he was risking his re-election. I consulted with an awful lot of people. And almost every single one of them told me, Clay, you cannot do this. It's a political disaster. And there's no way you can find him guilty of this, Campbell told Moriarty. With no physical evidence, Campbell's case relied on an eyewitness and two sisters testifying against their brother more than 50 years after the fact. Aaron Moriarty asked, Do you think your mother thought you had something to do with the Ridolf death? Jack McCullough replied, I don't know. She was not all there. She was under the influence of drugs and psychotic. Nobody knows what she was talking about, it was all in her head. Asked if her mom might have been confused, Jan Tessier told Moriarty, I did not at the time. I don't know why, but I knew she was speaking the truth. We knew it was a long shot trying to get that evidence in, Campbell explained. The mother isn't here to be interviewed. McCullough was certain the judge would never allow testimony of the deathbed confession, but the judge did allow it. Still, Campbell was worried. Would the judge believe his eyewitness Kathy Chapman's positive ID of the defendant so many decades after the crime? Janie O'Connor commented, In a small town, down the street, and you don't recognize him as the guy who lives down the street? Chapman told Moriarty, but I didn't know him. He was ten years older, now that I know who he is. The state's credibility problems didn't end there. Three jailhouse informants would testify that McCullough confessed to them behind bars. One snitch, now serving 33 years for murder, claimed that McCullough told him he killed Maria by accident. Campbell told Moriarty, the rules were very clear up front, there was absolutely nothing we were offering in exchange for their testimony, because I knew the judge would view it with the same skepticism that you are. McCullough told Moriarty, why would I run up to somebody who I did not know and say, oh, you look like an honest person, 
Why don't you listen to my story? I murdered a little girl and I want to stay in prison forever. Stupid, huh? But the biggest obstacle for Campbell was in the original FBI case file. Remember, according to statements made by witnesses at the time, McCullough has an alibi, something he tried to tell police when they arrested him. Jack McCullough interrogation transcript states, The day Maria was kidnapped, I was in the induction center, joining the Air Force. McCullough told Moriarty, The only thing that matters is where I was at the time of the kidnapping. I was in Rockford, 40 miles away. You can't beam me up, Scotty. He wasn't even invented. McCullough's alibi. As his murder trial approached, Jack McCullough felt confident. I have an alibi. We're talking about the FBI here, okay? J. Edgar Hoover's signature is on some of my documents, he told Moriarty. They couldn't find Hoover's signature, but the FBI file still made McCullough feel confident. And that's not all. McCullough also points out that he isn't the only credible suspect to have surfaced over the years. Before him, there was William Henry Redmond. You remember the newspaper articles written at the time? Moriarty asked Patrick Soler. Yes, he replied. And what were the headlines? Case closed, he replied. In 1997, Sycamore Police Lieutenant Patrick Soler was sure he had identified the man who likely killed Maria. Redmond had been arrested for the 1951 rape and murder of another little girl. He was a carnival worker and a truck driver and a day laborer, Soler explained. But there's a twist. Moriarty asked. By the time you heard about him? He had died in 1995, Soler explained. If you're Jack's defense attorney, Pat Soler is your dream witness because he pointed the finger at a totally different suspect and said, case closed, Moriarty noted. Yes, Soler affirmed. Before McCullough's trial even began, the judge ruled out any testimony about Redmond, stating that he was not a credible suspect. But the defense still had McCullough's alibi, FBI documents that indicate he made a collect call, which placed him miles away in another town when Maria Ridolf was snatched. Jack McCullough stated, at 6.57, I made the call. I had proof of where I was. Three people, a telephone operator and her supervisor, an Air Force colonel, and an Air Force tech sergeant all had me in Rockford from 6.57 until about 7.30. Aaron Moriarty asked, and why is that so crucial in this case? Jack McCullough replied, because she was kidnapped at 7 o'clock. But the state's attorney believes that other reports in the case file indicate Maria might have been abducted an hour earlier. It was easy for us to imagine him killing her at least kidnapping her, getting her in the car, and then driving up there and stopping at a pay phone and making a phone call from somewhere, said Campbell. Moriarty said, you think he was setting up an alibi by calling. 
There's no question, said Campbell. That alibi was McCullough's best hope. But court-appointed defense attorney Tom McCulloch and investigator Crystal Harrell were worried that they wouldn't be allowed to use these now more than 50-year-old documents at the trial. It's not standard in any trial that you ever allow reports in. That's why you call witnesses to testify, the police, Harrell explained. But in this case, all of our witnesses were dead or senile. And so, just like the police reports of other suspects, the judge kept the FBI file out. Aaron Moriarty stated, You understand why a judge would keep out these documents. These documents were written 55 years ago, and the people who wrote them are dead. There's no way to verify how credible they are. Jack McCullough replied, But it's okay for him to use hearsay in the case of my mother, isn't it? She was dead. Aaron Moriarty asked, You could have given your alibi if you took the stand, why didn't you take the stand? Jack McCullough said, That's what you got attorneys for. My attorneys told me they didn't want me to take the stand. When both sides rested, the judge announced he would take the night to review the evidence, but that he already had his decision. On September 14, 2012, the Ridolf and Tessier families gathered at the courthouse to hear the verdict. We went into the courtroom and the judge started to speak. And at first, I went, oh, no, because it sounded like he was going to say, not guilty, Jan Tessier said. And then he said, therefore I find the defendant guilty. The judge ruled that Jack McCullough would receive a life sentence with the possibility of parole after 20 years. The courtroom exploded. Maria got her justice. Jan said while giving a thumbs up to reporters outside the courthouse. In his decision, the judge said he found credible all the prosecution's witnesses, even the jailhouse informants. But it was Kathy Chapman's identification of the man she encountered as a little girl one winter evening, 55 years ago, that made the crucial difference. This time, the long arm of the law reached out and got him, Campbell told Moriarty. I think the reason there's not a statute of limitations on murder is because, we all think that, if you take a human life, that no matter how much time passes if you can still come forward in a court of law and prove that that person did it, then that person ought to suffer the consequences of having taken a human life. McCullough was sentenced to life in prison. Aaron Moriarty inquired, Did you get a fair trial, Jack? Jack McCullough said, I did not. Where is the proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Aaron Moriarty asked, Can anybody get a fair trial after 55 years? Jack McCullough said, No. There's nobody to testify on on my behalf. They're all dead. That's the problem with getting old. Moriarty asked Jan Tessier, Is the mystery finally solved? Yes, absolutely. The Ridolf family believes it. They know it. I know it. My family knows it, she replied. The investigators know it.
The prosecutors know it. It's a done deal. Aaron Moriarty, earlier in this interview, you told me that these accusations of rape and the sex allegations are irrelevant to this murder. But in fact, whoever killed Maria Ridolph was a pedophile, somebody who abused little girls. Jack McCullough said, you don't know that. Nobody knows that. That's supposition. Aaron Moriarty asked, but why are you unwilling to talk about these accusations of rape? Jack McCullough replied, it has nothing to do with murder. Aaron Moriarty said, but it has something to do with your character. It says a lot about you. Jack McCullough replied, I may have been a sinner, but I'm not a murderer. Aaron Moriarty asked, Is it possible then that you were acquitted of what you did do and convicted of what you didn't? Jack McCullough said, Yes, that could be. Aaron Moriarty questioned, Is that what happened? Jack McCullough replied, I just don't know. Case Update As a convicted child killer as well as an ex-cop, prison life was particularly hard on Jack McCullough. For his own safety, he was kept in protective custody, locked up in a tiny cell, 23 hours a day. But all that would change on April 15, 2016, at a hearing inside a packed Illinois courtroom. After serving five years of his life sentence, Jack McCullough heard the words that would set him free. Judge Bradley commented, I will sign an order vacating the judgment of conviction. This remarkable turn in the case came after state's attorney Richard Schmack had conducted his own review and found there was no way McCullough could have killed Maria Ridolph. The investigation was prompted by McCullough's motion for a new trial. After reviewing thousands of documents ruled inadmissible at trial, Prosecutor Schmack found himself in the unusual position of siding with the defense. The prosecutor in this county has made very clear that he believes Mr. McCullough is actually innocent and the facts demonstrated that, McCullough's defense attorney told reporters outside the courthouse. Those facts included newly discovered phone records that confirmed that McCullough was miles away when Maria was kidnapped. A week after he was released, McCullough was back in court to hear his case dismissed. Coming from an environment of, you can't do anything, to where you can do anything, you got to know what freedom is and it's just plain wonderful, McCullough said after his release from prison. And there was even more stunning news to come. In April 2017, Judge Bradley officially declared Jack McCullough innocent of Maria's murder. But McCullough will be tied up in court for years because he has filed a federal lawsuit against numerous Illinois state and local authorities for wrongful conviction. While sadly enough, one of the nation's oldest cold cases is yet again a cold case. Maria Ridolfa's case is now a reopened and active investigation being conducted by the Illinois State Police. We would like to say thanks to CBS Broadcasting and 48 Hours News Feed and court documents from Sycamore, Illinois for the info on this case. Anyone who has leads, 
or any creditable info on this case, please send this information to the Illinois State Police. Thanks for listening to another podcast of the True Crime Tales. Please come again and remember, please subscribe.